Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And I'd like to begin today by thanking Chris, Adam, Tony, Daniel, Katrina, and Sherilyn, who either uh, made direct donations to the salon or who made a donation for the Pay What You Can audiobook edition of my novel, The Genesis Generation. Uh, all of which will be used to help offset some of the expenses associated with these podcasts. And uh, so I thank you all very much for helping out. Also, uh, I want to let you know that we're now accepting Bitcoins on our donation page. Uh, although with the current price of a single Bitcoin, I should say that we're now uh, accepting Satoshis, <laughs> which as you know is the smallest unit of a Bitcoin. So, for our fellow Saloners who have been telling me to accept Bitcoins for the past couple of years, well, uh, what can I say? You are certainly right in advising me to do so, but uh, hey, better late than never, huh? Now, today I had hoped to begin playing a few more of the Planque Norte lectures from this year's Burning Man Festival, but unfortunately the default world has uh, been making some unreasonable demands on our volunteers who did the recordings. And so while I haven't forgotten about them, I'm, uh, well, I'm afraid that it's going to be, a, well, just a little bit longer before we get to hear them. So instead, I've decided to begin playing another one of the uh, Terrence McKenna workshops that we've got here. And uh, this is uh, one that was held in May of 1990, almost exactly one year after the uh, series of talks that I just got through playing for you a couple of podcasts back. Now, the copy of this talk that I have uh, doesn't give the workshop series any names of any kind. It just, uh, the tapes say Seminar 1, Seminar 2, and like that. And so, uh, once again, I came up with a few different titles for this podcast, and I finally uh, settled on something that Terrence had to say right near the end of this talk. So, uh, let's join him now for his opening remarks of the seminar, which uh, apparently had been going on for a little bit before the recorder got turned on. We will, I think, continue this kind of neurotic behavior until it either is our undoing or until we awaken to archaic values. And that's why the weekend is called what it is. The archaic revival is a very large cultural wave that you know, can be pushed. You could trace the beginnings of it, the first swell back to the turn of the century with relativity and theosophy and surrealism and the work of Freud and Jung on the unconscious. But it's a, a discovery, a moving toward uh, a realization that the values that can serve us are archaic values, that we have to go completely outside of history. And we have to make, um, you know, we are going to find out the nature of human nature we can't have it several ways. We can't live in obfuscation. I mean, the real question is, is man good? You know, because we're going to find out. Because as we move more and more into this cultural domain that I call the imagination, nothing lies between us and the expression of our dreams. You know, and so far... Our dreams have been, I think, expressed fairly shoddily. I mean, you know, our cities are like sores. Our, our contribution to the ecosystem of the planet is uh, plutonium, pesticides, chlorofluorocarbons, so forth and so on. An apologist for the human race would say, but we had so many strikes against us the law of gravity, the cost of materials, the resistance of water, air, and so forth and so on. Well, fine, then we're going to get rid of all that. We're going to enter into the imagination where, you know, the tensile strength of uh, a structure is whatever you say it is. This is, the, this is where language comes in, I, begin, I, I think. Language is the... Uh, 
sort of the CAD CAM, the computer-assisted drawing software for creating the reality of the imagination. I think it's a very, it's overwhelming, our situation, the potential and the depth of the strikes against us. I mean, it's really, I, um, what's going on on this planet is absolutely unique so far as we know. It's never happened before on this planet. Intelligence emerging out of biological organization and actually having a shot at what? Who knows? I mean, being itself is some kind of opportunity. The, the reasonable expectation is that nothing exists. Well, why should anything exist? I mean, it seems to me the most conservative universe would be a dimensionless plenum, a homogenous, pointless, dimensionless... That makes sense. Why, then, is there instead, you know, multiplicity upon multiplicity? I mean, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, <laughs> stuff like that. How in the world do you get from utter emptiness to that kind of thing? The, the richness, the creative force behind it all is awesome. And I am not, I'm not religious in any ordinary sense. And in fact, I'm violently anti-religious in most senses. I mean, I certainly you know, would lead the charge against priestcraft in any form. But the, the picture of the universe as uh, a machine subject to a few laws discovered by a bunch of guys in powdered wigs. That's ridiculous. I mean, you've got to be kidding. Uh, science doesn't deal, as it's always at pains to point out, with what's called subjective experience. Well, that's really too bad, because that's all any of us ever have, is subjective experience. You know, so, so we have, in the interests of, I don't know what exactly, a curious drive, an obsession of the Greeks, really, an obsession with the physical world that we have not been able to disentangle ourselves with, so that, you know, we can measure the temperature of distant stars, but we don't know what we think about the woman we're living with, stuff like that just such a completely overgrown and overdeveloped dichotomous situation that uh, it makes no sense. So, uh, in terms of any kind of conclusion or something like that, it's that there is an experience. It's harmless, meaning it can't kill you. That's the guarantee there. There is this experience. It is in our cultural heritage. It synergizes the most profound and private dimensions of our being. It allows us to recast ourselves in new forms quickly. And uh, if we don't turn back toward this style of relating to ourselves, to each other, and to the world, but persist instead in the addiction to syntactical abstraction, then I, don't, I think we'll just run it off the edge. That, uh, and it will be a tragedy, because it is a horse race. Don't let anybody kid you. It's not that the good guys are miles and miles behind, and so you just might as well tear your ticket up and throw it in the air and go home. No, it's an absolute horse race. Neck and neck, photo finish, race between education and disaster. I mean, we're going to either burst out into a millennium of freedom and caring and decency, or we're going to toxify the whole thing and just turn it into an ash heap. And the responsibility falls largely on us. And we don't know. I mean, the momentum, the lethal momentum of these institutions is terrifying. Our position is like that of people who are attempting to turn a battleship 180 degrees and we're doing it with a, an oar, you know? I mean, the, the momentum of it is, is incredible. But it is not a closed system. 
And I say this as a reasonable person. I mean, I, I want to keep stressing that, that I, I, am, I won't sit at the same table with the channelers and, the, and the, the people who have good news about Atlantis and all of this stuff. I mean, if this is your private thing, it's okay, but the, the rules of evidence preclude it being taken seriously until you get your act more together. But... In the psychedelic experience, there is confounding paranormal material. It's the only place I've ever found it. I scoured India. These guys, as far as I can tell, it's a skin game. Uh, but, but outlandish things are going on inside the psychedelic experience. It seems to imply the thing we had hardly dared hope which is that the world is whatever you say it is if you know how to say it right. And then the whole task becomes, how do we take control of this language that allows us uh, uh, to say it right? We, we I, I think I speak for most people here, serve the idea that matter is ultimately at the command of mind. But we need to move that forward as a demonstrable principle because uh, uh, without that, the fear of most people is that we're imprisoned by physics in a sinking submarine. And, and yet when you go into these psychedelic spaces, what you discover is that all bets are off, <laughs> that we can't even tell how weird it is. I mean, it may be possible to walk to our tourists uh, if you have the right set of coordinates. And uh, the whole concern is to get the word out, to spread this meme, to empower people to confirm the existence of these realities for themselves and to begin to form a kind of community consensus about it. You know, it's only, I guess, in 1992 we will celebrate the 500th anniversary of the discovery of the new world. 500 years ago, people discovered the other half of this planet, and we're living there now. This, this is the new world. 500 years ago, th this didn't exist. What existed was a vast cataract uh, patrolled by sea monsters, and the oceans of the world poured off this cataract into the infinite abyss, and that was the edge of the world. We, the psychedelic people, are like these early explorers, coming back and saying, you know, I sailed west for 16 days and I didn't go mad. Instead, this is what happened, and I bring news of this, this, and this. And what we're accumulating are like the diaries of explorers. But... There's a world there. It's a mental world, yes, but we are mental creatures. Take note of that. Uh, if we could go there, we would go there. And the thing is, we don't know that we can't go there. We have never taken the imagination seriously. We have never taken the self-management of culture seriously. We've always sort of thought things should just go along... Uh, like a random walk. But now, because of the immense technical power that's come into our hands, we're, the design process of the whole planet is now on our desk, and we're being asked to essentially step into stewardship of the entire planetary environment. We have to have, then, a vision. We have to have a dream not a vision or a dream, the vision, the dream. And it can't come from uh, the personality of individual human beings. It has to come out of the bones of the planet. Yeah. And this is, I think, what the psychedelic experience is broadcasting. It's broadcasting the hologrammatic, fractal, altogether all at once image of totality that our religions have sensed and called God, that the, the shaman have learned to use as a vast kind of computer for extracting information and for generating healing energy. But 
it is that there is some con- kind of controlling, minded, integrated thing behind nature. And we're not going to understand that this weekend, next week, or ever. This is not a relationship of solving a problem. It's a relationship of being a, an initiate of a mystery and then living your life, you know, in, in the light of that. And, uh, and the task of understanding is endless because understanding is simply the integrated coordination of pattern. And nature is pattern upon pattern upon pattern, upon pattern, upon level, upon level. It has no depth. Its measure cannot be taken. Everything is infinite, and everything is animate, and everything is filled with a kind of deep concern for humanity. I mean, we are the lame little brother because we seem to be cut off from all the rest of this. Well, that's kind of a Blakean uh, take on it. The shamanistic cultures themselves having a uh, notion of a fall, and that the, the and, and this may just be the people that we happen to interview in our area where we're actually studying it, but that um, the the old days of shamanism were the were the good days, and what we have now is is diluted. And is that just a a, a matter of of cultural contact with other cultures and that the original uh, shamanistic cultures were isolated or is indeed there a, a different uh, quality to the time of this 20,000 years ago that led to a general fall amongst well, our species of you know, people in general? It's a very complicated question. It, the answer gets pretty technical or talking about it gets pretty technical. Uh, the thing that's so interesting about psilocybin and DMT is that they're so closely related to ordinary brain chemistry. The brain chemistry of all higher animals runs largely on serotonin. Serotonin is 5-hydroxytryptamine. DMT is NN-dimethyltryptamine. Psilocybin is 4-phosphoryloxy-NN-dimethyltryptamine, but the phosphoryloxy group goes off as it crosses the blood-brain barrier, so it's 4-hydroxy-NN-dimethyltryptamine. So it's very interesting that uh, these powerful, naturally occurring hallucinogens are in many cases only one molecule away from endogenous neurotransmitters. So, in answer to your question, it's possible to suggest that we're as close as one mutation away from significant shifts in the chemical uh, mix of the human brain. And, for instance, in the pineal gland, um, there's an enzyme called adenoroglomerotropine, which is chemically... Uh, uh, 6-methoxy tetrahydroharmalan. It's very closely related to the harmine alkaloids in ayahuasca. Well, the persistent myth about ayahuasca is that it creates states of group-mindedness and telepathy. The original alkaloid was actually named telepathine until it was discovered that it was structurally similar to harmine, which had been previously described by uh, Hochstein and Paradis. So, in other words, what's going on here is the possibility that language, telepathy, and all of these mental abilities that are unique among human beings have to do with a very, very small number of mutations in the amine, brain amine production pathways. Uh, one of the things that I want to talk about here is the, the possibility of new forms of communication and that the psychedelics can, can stimulate new forms of communication among human beings, even in the way that they created language in the first place. In other words, I see language as 
a Model A version of something which could be made uh, a lot, a lot more efficient and better and effective. You had something, and then you, or did you? You go ahead. When human when humankind changes direction and, and goes uh, towards the, uh, the the altered state, the Silicon altered state, and, and, and that projection, what do you think that we will do with with science and all of the stuff that we've created that is destroying us? Well, science. There are different ways to practice science. Uh, the Greek style was. Science was a spiritual undertaking. The purpose was to know. The idea being that somehow there was something good about knowing. I mean, I had a, a, a philosophy professor who said, first of all, I'll teach you how to recognize the truth. Secondly, I'll try to teach you what's so great about it. And uh, this, this is that kind of a situation. Science philosophers of science are perfectly aware of the limitations of science. It's the thousands and thousands of workbench scientists who think of themselves as servants of a world religion who create the problem. We need to know how matter works and we need to know the things which science tells us, but it, ha it is no basis for extrapolating into human values. And the, the culprit there is the concept of social science. This is an obscene idea, and should be we should disabuse ourselves of it immediately. Social science, psychology, intellectual history, um, you know, even linguistics, I would say, and philology, and all of this stuff. These people should find honest work. <laughs> they're not scientists, and they're mucking up. I mean, it was a grand dream of science that it would extend its methods into social phenomena, having had such great success in the 19th century with Darwin and Wallace and biology. They thought, well, then Herbert Spencer and all these people, why not just extend it into society? But the problem is uh, there are emergent properties in society that exceed the descriptive engines of science. There are emergent properties in biology. I mean, biology is not may also have to be left out of science. I mean, biology is classificatory, and it works very well there. But in terms of mechanism and understanding, it's pretty murky. DNA was decoded in 1950. The molecular geneticists promised a golden age shortly to follow, and it's 40 years later, and they still don't understand gene expression or what all this stuff is in the DNA. It's been very disappointing, uh, considering what was promised. I think science is an art. Everything is an art, because we have no sure knowledge of anything. I mean, maybe mathematics is not an art, because there, you know, you work from... Uh, artificially constructed premises. I'm very much, very keen on science. I just don't like its philosophical pontifications. Uh, as a method, it's, it's, uh, it's been very effective, but it's bred great pride in it, and it's thought that it could turn itself to domains where it was completely uh, inappropriate. Yeah. I just, uh, I have a lot of questions, but I want to try to limit them to the, uh, maybe a few, one or two. Um, I haven't tried uh, mushrooms yet. I sent away to get them to grow there. Um, but a lot of the things that you've been explaining and describing, uh, to me, have become a reality over the last year. And um, Just the usage of hashish, just ingestion of it, uh, on a very, I'd have to say, a very... Um, well, probably limited because I'm comparing my experience to the psilocybin descriptions that you give and they sound, you know, tremendous. I think the question I'm looking for is before you, I guess, got involved with psilocybin and DMT and things like that, were you predisposed to saving the planet and, and being a, a human, humanistic type of person 
ended the DMT and psilocybin take, or did it take you to a more profound awareness of you know, what you as a human wanted to do? Well, I've thought about all of this because it's weird to have the life I have. <laughs> uh, you know, it's so strange. I mean, uh, until I went into therapy, I, had the, I thought I had the most ordinary family in the world. And then once you're in therapy, you discover, you know, that no, it was the most insane scene you've ever heard of. And you, you, you just didn't notice. But... Uh, I've always I've always been interested in nature and I've always been interested in beauty and I think it was the pursuit of beauty that served me best because uh when I was a kid first I started out collecting rocks and then I collected butterflies and then in my emergent phallic phase I was an amateur rocketeer and the major thrill there was setting off these explosive fuels and watching the possibility of shrapnel and all this stuff. And, and, and then as I got into rockets, I got into science fiction. And science fiction, I really consider a proto-psychedelic drug because what science fiction does is it gives permission to imagine says, try it this way, this way, this way. And then you get, as a kid, you get the idea, you know, that anything is possible. That's what science fiction teaches you. And then, uh, and I was really obsessive about science and I wanted to be an astronautical engineer and Werner von Braun was my hero and all that. And then it sort of flipped at some point and I got in and I decided that I had been terribly narrow and I was figuring all this out for myself. I was in some little town in Colorado and I decided I'd been terribly narrow and that it was all in the humanities. And I began reading Henry James and all, all this stuff. And I was into Aldous Huxley as an example of an English novelist and read Anti K, Chrome Yellow, After Many a Summer Must Die of the Swan and so forth and so on. And then came upon The Doors of Perception. And just, you know, I was like 14 years old, and it was a a astonishing. And I said, if, if a tenth of this is true, then this is the most amazing thing there is. Well, if you've read The Doors of Perception, you know it's actually a terribly conservative gloss. I mean, it's all about looking at pictures and seeing the iskite in the folds of your trousers and thinking about how that relates to Meister Eckhart and all this Huxleyan type stuff. But that gave me the idea. And then I stuck with it. I stuck with it somehow and found marijuana and that went on to LSD and then my great good fortune I think is that just a few months after I took LSD somebody brought me DMT and and you know DMT is a miracle I mean DMT is like something that fell out of a flying saucer I mean it is so strong and so psychedelic I mean I don't I can't imagine being more smashed than that or wanting to be I mean, it's, it's, it's more like a near-death experience than any near-death experience I ever heard anybody describe. They sound absolutely pedestrian compared to a DMT trip where, you know, you're sure you're dead. You say, what the hell else could it be? You know? And then I went, to, I went to Asia. I was at Berkeley when I had all these drug experiences. And then I went to Asia and tried to find it with yogas and all that and ended up smoking a lot of hashish and becoming more cynical than ever about spirituality and just saying, you know, hashish and LSD. That was, before I went to the Amazon, that was what I discovered that really convinced me you could get somewhere was, you know, take a bunch of LSD and then smoke great hash on top of that and really crazy things do go on. And then I went to the Amazon and, uh, you know, incredible shamanism is happening there. I mean, they're not, they don't hold back. The method I used in India was I would just say, you know, what can you show me? 
You know, I've read all these books. I know how to manipulate all this multisyllabic mumbo-jumbo. But just one thing. You say, oh, no, it's not happening. It's very pushy. <laughs> so, but then when you go to South America, then they just say, okay, let's go out in the forest. We'll get this stuff. We'll cook it up. And tonight we'll show you our best trick. And it slams you to the wall. I mean, you plead for mercy. Uh, and, uh, and it was a vindication, because the thing I want to stress, and I don't know if it's as important to you as it is to me, but you do not have to sell out to any form of airheadism. You can be as tight-assed as you want. You can be as hard-nosed as you want. You can be as demanding, analytical, rational as you want. And the thing is bigger than you are. It'll just take you apart. It'll make you weep like a baby. So there's nothing about faith and sensitivity and reaching. And, uh, no, no, no. When it comes... You know, it kicks in the front door and takes you prisoner. It's, uh, so, uh, and, I, and that was what the flying saucer meant when it said, because you didn't believe in anything. This is the way to get somewhere. You'll never get anywhere if you believe in stuff, because, you know, it'll take you six months to work through Babaji, and then you have to go on to somebody else, and life is just not long enough to give all these guys uh, a crack at your enlightenment. So, you know, you sort of have to goose it along. And, uh, and the great vindication is then that when you behave like that, when you take that stance, which you would expect would betray you into nihilism, depression, and so forth, instead, no, that's works. That's the method. Then the gold, you know, reject everything but gold. And you know what gold is? It looks like gold. It feels like gold. It's not something that you have to... You know? I mean, I'm amazed at what thin soup is dished out as spiritual food. Uh, And it's because we are, as individuals, conflicted, you know? I, I feel this in myself. I mean, it's hard to take psychedelics. It's not hard to sweep up around the ashram. But it's hard to take psychedelics. You know, I read some stuff by Andrew Weil where he was talking about going in search of, you know, the ayahuasquero, the curanero, and he talks a lot about these guys that are mixing up this sloppy brew and and they're drunks and they're they're just, you know, I don't. I don't even know if you could go down to the Amazon and find... I don't know what you could find. I haven't been there, but, but it does, it, what his accounts were is there's a lot of just slop and drunk stuff happening. There, that most of these, a lot of these guys are alcoholics, you know? No, you're absolutely right. And that's right. the main thing happening was the alcohol throughout just... And the Christianity has just kind of pervaded so much of this stuff that I, I wonder what's left and how you find it anymore. Well... It really helps to do your homework. It really helps to go down there knowing as much as you possibly can about all this. Because meaning, apparently so much of what you get out of it has to do with how it's made. That's right. Makes it, how it's mixed that's and right. so on. And, and if you don't make it yourself and you don't know what's happening, then what have you got? Because ayahuasca is a combinatory drug, it isn't like peyote or mushrooms or morning glories where you get the thing and eat it, and if you eat it in sufficient amounts, it works. This is something where two plants have been combined and the proportions must be correct and the method must be correct. So there's a huge room for personalities to come into it, for fast shuffles of all sorts and mind games of all sorts to and take place. Guys, a lot of them are very egotistical too. It's true. No, what you have to do if you're into ayahuasca or what we did was we just, first of all, we drank a huge amount of swill And we worked our way slowly through these people. And if somebody appeared to be an asshole, they were so classified and moved on. And eventually, we got to good people. But what we did then was we got samples of their stuff, brought it back, put it through mass spectrophotometers and high-pressure liquid chromatography, saw what the proportions were, 
collected the live plants, moved them to Hawaii, grew the plants, reconcocted the thing, remass-specked what we did, and made it as much like the good stuff as possible. So it was a project of 15 years and really maniacal dedication. But I have the faith, you know, I mean, that if given sufficient time to work on ayahuasca, you could produce a drug out of there so good that it would be ludicrous to suggest that it was illegal. I mean, I because you see, this is brain soup. These are all neurotransmitters. There's not a non-endogenous neurotransmitter in the whole beverage. So really, what you're... What you're con- not a what? A non-endogenous neurotransmitter, meaning everything in this drug that you're about to drink is already in your head. There's nothing unusual where drugs like ketamine, mescaline, LSD, there's none of that in your body. It's like a slow-release DMT trip. It lasts four to six hours, and it's intensely visual. And unlike psilocybin, it's not... It doesn't have this uh, outer space, science fiction, mega-apocalyptarian kind of take on it, which is what psilocybin does. I mean, psilocybin shows you the machines preparing to transport the faithful away from a burning earth. That's not what ayahuasca is about. It's about nature, water, flow, life, energy. It's almost, you know, when MDMA was so hot and people called it an empathy drug and said it makes you empathetic with the people you're with, ayahuasca makes you empathetic with the people you're not with. And that's a much more profound experience because there's so much more of them, you know. I don't understand how you mean that, empathetic with the people you're not with. I don't quite get it. You feel the poignancy of the human situation. You feel... Well, see, I'm usually in a hut somewhere surrounded by a bunch of Indians, and suddenly I understand what the songs are about. And they're always about the same thing. They're about the water and the people and the life and the fish and lost love. And, but you, you, you have this heart-opening thing. You say, you know, the folk... This is their mystery. This is their... Re- I'm getting it now. I'm feeling, you know, this huge wave of, uh, of the wisdom of the folk. And they say this to you in Peru. They say, you know, this is our university. You went to Harvard. We went to ayahuasca. Uh, yeah. I'm wondering if uh, you can comment on uh, uh, morning, rather, ginseng wheat, which I believe is the same thing as morning glorices. No, it's different. And but I'm, I'm curious about ginseng wheat because it grows wild all over. It's on the property, it's all down the highway. It's toxic also. For it's quite toxic. Um, it's, a, it's used shamanically in, in pre-contact California. The California Indians had what was called the Tolach religion. And they used jimson weed seeds to initiate people at puberty, boys mostly. It's, uh, I'm, I'm kind of Pollyannish about drugs. I mean, I'm, uh, I don't, I, I'm after a certain thing, which these tryptamine hallucinogens do, and I tend to not pursue these other things too far. I didn't like Datura. It's very hard to have the degree of clarity that I think you should have on a drug. The tryptamine hallucinogens don't interfere with your clarity at all. You know who you are, where you are, what you're doing. I've seen people on Datura. I had an experience with someone on Datura where in the course of the conversation it came out that the guy thought we were in his apartment and I had actually encountered him in the marketplace. Well, that's a serious delusion. You know, that's a serious problem. When I took Datura, uh, all this was in Nepal years ago, uh, I did have peculiar experiences. I mean, it, it is magical. It is delusory. Reality begins to come apart. Uh, I These wraith-like 
ghost-like creatures would come through my window and I was waiting to get high and then I would sort of, my attention would drift and these things would come through my window and they would let loose these sheets of newsprint that would flutter down over my life and I would like fall forward reading (laughs) these things that were, and as I read, amazement would grow in me and say, this is it, this is the answer, this is it. And then I would pull out and say, no, is it working? Is anything happening? And, and that went on, so there were several passes of that. And then, I be, and then it caused me to like throw my leg up around my neck and I got into this kind of thing. And I very carefully unfolded myself and lay back down. And then it happened again. And I thought to myself, you know, I'm, very, I'm really glad I'm alone. <laughs> because I think this would freak anybody out. And uh, so uh, I, I... But it, it was definitely strange. I mean, the guy down the hall from me, I had taken it. He had taken it. And uh, he had the impression in the night that this woman that he was scheming on came to him and that they made love and in the middle of the night I got up to go to the john and I had to cross through his room and it was also my impression that she was in bed with him well when we sorted it out the next morning she'd been 30 miles away throughout the whole incident and had never been there so it's interesting. There are a lot of altered states. Maybe that's a good point to make. There are all kinds of strange states of mind and, and many plant-induced. From sorting through them, I've just become sort of uh, fixated on these tryptamine things because they seem to me somehow the most promising and the most real uh, the, the hallucinations of Jimson Weed are curiously related in my mind. It's some kind of association schema. They're like seances and table tapping and Victorian women in shredded lace dresses. And that's, you know, about as far from a DMT hallucination as you can get. I mean, DMT hallucinations are three, if not four-dimensional, brightly colored, high-tech, organo-insectoid, so forth and so on. You talked about the the momentum is so strong and then having to change it. And like I think of all the people that are opposed to drugs and they think every drug is the same and so forth. It just seems like an impossible task to be able to educate where these drugs would be available and then people could take them and they see the world in a healthier way. Uh, what do you have to say about a question like that? Well, it, it's this struggle about human nature, defining human nature, you know. Is it good to take certain drugs? Is it always bad to take drugs? What's our, you know, can you always tell a drug from a food, from a spice? What do these words really mean? Uh, all we can do is what we are doing, which is replicate the mean, hold these workshops, try to build a core of consensus about what we're talking about. And this is itself quite elusive, you see, because what we're talking about is a mental event. Less focused than, let us say, orgasm. But even if you're talking about orgasm, here we use this word, but it must mean something different to everybody. Well, it's even, the problem is much worse with the psychedelic experience because nobody wants to be left out. So anybody who's ever taken anything thinks they've had the psychedelic experience and feels fully qualified to hold an opinion on it. When, in fact, it's pretty elusive, the real thing. Uh, you have to take a heroic dose under the right conditions to really smash through. I mean, yes, there are all kinds of approaches to it, insight into childhood trauma, recovery of lost memories, opening to your emotional side, uh, insights into the dynamics of the life and people around, all of it, but that is not 
anywhere near the bullseye. That's just dancing around the rim of it. So you ha- we have to, as a community, try and build consensus about what happens at the, at the real center. What's happening at the center of the mandala? What kind of a modality can we describe and create a shared map of that we can come back to the rest of the folks and talk about? And then the other thing is, um, well, I'm just banking on curiosity to do a lot of the footwork for the revolution. This is too good to miss. you know, it's like placing sex off limits or something and then expecting people not to find out about it. it, it now that Marxism has collapsed, uh, if we don't substitute something for consumer values, then we're just going to rape the earth in an effort to create crap for everybody. Well, the only counterpoise to consumer values, to materialism, is spiritualism. And I don't mean some bloodless, carol-singing kind of namby-pamby abstraction. I mean there has to be as much inner richness as there previously was outer richness. And this is why, to the alarm of some people, I've been fairly interested in virtual realities. Because I think, you know... You know, if everybody wants to live in Versailles, the only way you're going to be able to do that is if you make Versailles a disc for three ninety-five that they can <laughs> plug in and then go live in it. So uh, we can't preach to the have-nots the virtue of voluntary simplicity when we're riding around in BMWs and collecting Monets. That doesn't make a lot of sense. So building a core consensus... This is still in answer to your question, what can we do? And then replicating the meme. And I introduce this concept in each of my workshops because I think it, it, gets, it's, it makes it easier for you to understand what's happening here. A meme is the smallest unit of an idea. It's like a gene is to proteins. Proteins are made by genes, and genes code for proteins. Okay, well, ideas are made out of memes. And you link a few memes together, and you have an idea. Memes, like genes, can be replicated. You replicate them by either telling the meme to many people, or telling a lot of people all at once. And then these people you've told they become potential replicators of the meme. And there is a domain of culture that is like an environment of competing ideas. And the memes go off and live in this ideological environment. And some flourish, and some are consumed by others, and some are incorporated into others. And the idea is to keep the psychedelic meme alive and to make it grow and to allow its claim to be heard. It's not in danger of dying. It's a very persistent meme. It's been around for about 20,000 years and it's been highly repressed in many cultures for the last couple of thousand years. Yet, we're trying to uh, rebirth it. So thinking about it that way, thinking of yourself as a replicator of this thing which wishes to move through society, gives a mechanical model for understanding uh, what is really ideological war, you know? A war about the definition of human nature. That's what's at stake. Uh, What shall we become? Uh, What can we become? Uh, there's no question that we need a greater consciousness of who we are. And if psychedelic drugs are to be taken seriously at all as consciousness-expanding agents, then they have to be given their due place in the great dialogue that's taking place about the, the future, creating it, and then uh, realizing it, the, the future of the species. Um, I wanted to say something further about the 
the book of Genesis and the notion of getting to the center. There are two uh, cherubims guarding the gate <coughs> with the flaming swords, and that they uh, represent uh, a pair of opposites, fear and desire, and the part of the uh, problem of getting a bite of that uh, tree of immortal life is getting to the realm beyond pair of opposites, beyond, beyond fear and desire. And uh, the other related thing is that why the question of why uh, this world is not uh, one of just a homogeneous uh, perfection and instead a world of multiplicity of forms and conflicts. And it's in the, <coughs> from a drop of ignorance that spills into undifferentiated perfection. And from that one drop of ignorance proceeds the multiplicity of the world we experience. This is a Gnostic idea, the drop of ink in, in the pure glass of water. Yeah, well, Gnosticism was the idea, I mean, in, it had many forms, but the basic idea was that light had been scattered through the universe and that the task of salvation was to gather this light together and to somehow transmit it back to its source in some some higher dimension, which th is a pretty good metaphor. Uh, one of the issues that comes up in these workshops inevitably, and I confess I don't have a real answer for this, is, you know, are we a part of nature and the stewards of nature, or are we out of nature? Are we of another ontos and, and sculpted for a different destiny? Uh, it's very clear that the, the life of the planet and our uh, success as a conscious species, these two things have to either be split away from each other or one is going to be the undoing of the other. And uh, this is a real problem. This problem haunts Western thinking. It's nothing new. Is nature God or is nature the devil? I mean, that's the, the harshest statement of this problem. One of the ways of detecting uh, breast cancer is with uh, thermography, where they look for a hot spot on the breast, and it, it, that's a suspicious area. And I think when I'm up in an airplane at night and I look down on... Gaia, think of this as a, an organism, a giant organism, and say, gee, there's a cancer down there. That's, it's hot. You can see it. It's glowing. And you go down there, and what you find uh, is, if you look upon us as sort of um, the thing, the cells which have gone awry, and uh, the way in which we've gone awry is, uh, is the, the nature of our consciousness in that it's focused in terms of time and space and causality. And then the thumb, the prehensile, the ability to do something about it, because I, I don't know for sure, but I imagine that the uh, well, dolphins could have their consciousness with, with a sense of time, and they, they might have some of the same time, space, causality understanding of the physical world that we do, but they lack the ability to do anything about to it. To project force into yeah. the world. So that uh, given those two qualities, this quality of, of our minds to, to, um, to look upon the world through in this way, time, space, and causality, and that thumb, we have become the, the cancer on, on the, the, the organism of the earth. Well... See, I, I mean, I... quite a negative thought. It is negative, and I, I'm not sure that I buy into it, and, and I'm not sure that I don't buy into it either. This is the question. Is the evolution of historical society and science and, and all the ugly adumbrations of that, sexism, fascism, racism, is that part of the process? Or is it a breaking away? Is there some good in it? Was history for something, or would we have just been better off without it? And I don't know. Uh, sometimes I, th I, I mean, I think of Western civilization as pro the prodigal son. You know, we went forth, we left our father's house, which was the archaic style of existence. We left our father's house, and we wandered into matter, 
and cut deals with demonic forces and millennia have passed and now the earth is polluted and we are back at the, ar- at the longhouse saying to these people, do you have any wisdom that can save us from our fate? Well, they do to a degree. I mean, they have this deep insight into natural dynamics and curing and maybe more. I mean, maybe there is magic in this world. Uh, but we, uh, we know some things, too. I mean, we can summon the energy of the stars, if necessary, down to the deserts of this planet or to the cities of our enemies, if necessary. And this is no small accomplishment on any scale. This is quite impressive. I mean, my God, that, that cytoplasm could create a strategy for triggering, triggering fusion. It's amazing. Uh, so I would like to think that this peregrination into matter went for something, that these are skills that we may need out in the universe when we really get our wings uh, and take off. And, and that this deep involvement with matter, it was a kind of an addiction. And if we can pull out of it, a great deal has been learned. I mean, after all, if people had stayed in the rainforests, then we would have been ineluctably linked to the destiny of this planet as an animal species. And what if this is the only intelligence in the universe? Then I would think we have a certain obligation to uh, preserve it past the life of the existence of the solar system. So if we're not willing to commit ourselves at any phase of our evolution to a technical phase that involves mastery over matter, then we have no more defense against the larger universe than raccoons and katydids if push comes to shove. I don't know. I mean, I stress that there's no easy resolution on this. It haunts all thinking about conservation. I mean, I thought throughout the 80s, why aren't the conservationist space colony enthusiasts? Why don't the Save the World people support the high-tech solutions that would move industry off the planet? Why are these various factions unable to make common cause behind a very large vision? And... uh, I don't know, but I think as pressure mounts for solutions, this will have to be done. I mean, I would like to live in a world where the entire Earth was a bio-reserve. I would like to live in a situation where the idea that there would be heavy industry inside the bio-reserve would be thought an abomination. All that stuff can be done on the moon or in the asteroid belts. It's as inappropriate as having a nuclear power plant in the middle of a rainforest to have heavy industry on the surface of the earth. We need to think on very large time scales and we need to figure out how to create political machinery to do that. We've been living a a potlatch existence, just a frenzied consumerist kind of uh, unthinking uh, abuse and, and I think the best inoculation for that style of life is a, is a stiff dose of psychedelics. You can't evade it, you know. It dissolves boundaries, it puts you... It allows you to feel what you're doing. I mean, the level of denial in this society is incredible. My God, we don't feel it. We read the newspaper, but we don't feel what it's telling us, you know, because if we felt it, we would probably be an emotional wreck. But there's something to be said for opening up to some of that. Uh, you know, there, there's a notion in therapy that if you want the client to actually make progress, you raise the alarm level. Guy comes to you for therapy, you say to him, you think you've got problems? <laughs> you have no idea what problems you have. And then work from there. So... Uh, It's very serious business. It's uh, trying to steer a society back toward a faith that was lost. And God is like a lost continent in the human mind. And it's the only continent where there is safe harbor in, uh, in the present historical situation.
Well, why don't we knock off and uh, we'll meet at four o'clock. Thanks very much. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Well, I don't know about you, but uh, he was uh, kind of bumming me out there at the end. Uh, but right after I sign off, I'll uh, try to remember to replay a short soundbite from this talk that uh, will kind of remind us of uh, what it is that uh, we can go about uh, doing in this uh, somewhat strange situation we humans have seemingly gotten ourselves into. And I'm not sure how to take his comment about uh, family and therapy when he said, and I quote, Until I went into therapy, I thought I had the most ordinary family in the world. And then once you're in therapy, you discover that it was the most insane scene you'd ever heard of. And uh, you just didn't notice. (laughs) End quote. Well, uh, I've read his brother Dennis's book about their childhood and... uh, well, in many ways, it didn't seem all that different from my own. <laughs> However, uh, I've never been in therapy, and uh, so I still think of my family as uh, quite ordinary. But uh, I guess that in a way, it was different in that, uh, well, I had a fantastic family life. You know, my parents didn't believe in corporal punishment, and so I was never spanked. Uh, I never even once heard my parents raise their voices at one another. Uh, you know, we were poor. My dad didn't own a car or things like that, but... Uh, We were really happy, I thought, and uh, had a good life together. And my guess is that maybe Terrence may have been exaggerating a bit when he said that uh, (laughs) through therapy he discovered that his family scene was insane. Uh, I think the definition of insane is being kind of used loosely there. Okay, yeah, well, I guess I better come clean with you. One of the reasons that this podcast is a bit late in coming out is that Well, I I really didn't want to admit it that uh, it was time to say ciao to uh, one of my all-time favorite podcasts. As you most likely know already, the the Dope Fiend has put the Dopecast on an indefinite hiatus. At least, uh, that's what I gather based on some of his recent tweets and the way he ended his latest program. You know, it's kind of strange. Uh, I realize that the Dope Fiend himself is uh, actually a very young man who has a full and exciting life ahead of him. You know, uh, he's not dead for crying out loud, (laughs) but like uh, many other dope drivers, I I cried a big no out loud when I heard the news. Now, I guess uh, for our newcomers here to the salon, you're probably wondering what the big deal is. Uh, So if you've got uh, just a minute or so, I'll let you know. It was uh, a little over eight years ago when I began podcasting from here in the salon, and uh, not long after I started, the Dope Fiend and KMO also, also came online. And uh, it was KMO of the Sea Realm and the Psychonautica podcasts who uh, first told me about the Dope Fiend and uh, that he was forming the Cannabis Podcast Network. Well, uh, before long, the Dope Fiend, uh, KMO, Queer Ninja, and Lefty were uh, my regular weekly companions in podcast land. And uh, at some point, uh, it, I guess it must have been two or three years ago, or I mean two or three years after we all got started, that uh, we all kind of hit a wall, but uh, well, fortunately we were all hitting it at a little different times. So there was a period of several months there where we were taking turns uh, thinking about stopping our podcasts, uh, and at the same time the others were providing encouragement to go on, and uh, which we all did for a while longer. Then my uh, dear friend Queer Ninja had to uh, stop his marvelous uh, Sounds of Worldwide Weed podcasts uh, when the demands of the default world pressed in on him. And now, for uh, reasons I very much understand, uh, the Dope Fiend is going to begin to uh, devote more time to other pursuits. And uh, my guess is that both Lefty and KMO are going to outlast me with... uh, KMO probably being like the uh, bunny in that battery commercial, and he's just going to still be going on on the day they close the internet. Uh, (laughs) In other words, there's just no stopping KMO. Uh, You see my problem here? I'm talking about everything except the fact that, uh, well, the dope fiend has retired, or at least semi-retired, and I'm really going to miss his shows. You know, I've uh, heard and read my share of uh, cannabis advice uh, throughout my years, but without any exception, the information that the Dope Fiend put out, week after week, uh, and always on time, never missing a week, well, uh, that was by far, by far, the best source of cannabis news and information on the web. 
You know, it's a resource that's still there, by the way, and uh, so is the Worldwide Weed. All you have to do is go to the archives of their programs, which you can find at dopefiend.co.uk. You know, in his last program, the Dope Fiend closed with a song that I've always liked. Uh, I think it's called, Is That All There Is? It's a good song, but uh, hey, Dope Fiend, I, I don't want you to think that just by signing off from the Dopecast that uh, that's all there is, my friend. Because uh, there are hundreds of thousands of us dope tribers all around the world who will uh, forever be waking up every Monday morning and uh, have the first thing they do is check their MP3 players to uh, see if you posted a new show. (laughs) And since you said that there's always a chance that you'll do another podcast from time to time, well, I'll be checking mine. I'll be one of those dope drivers who will be thinking of you, uh, and not only on Monday mornings, but uh, much more often than that, for you have contributed more to this community and this world than you can possibly know. And uh, so, on behalf of everyone here in the Psychedelic Salon, I want to wish you uh, smooth sailing and the best of all worlds as your earthly adventure continues to unfold. Be well, my dear friend. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. There is a domain of culture that is like an environment of competing ideas. And the memes go off and live in this ideological environment. And some flourish, and some are consumed by others, and some are incorporated into others. And the idea is to keep the psychedelic meme alive and to make it grow and to allow its claim to be heard. It's not in danger of dying. It's a very persistent meme. It's been around for about 20,000 years and it's been highly repressed in many cultures for the last couple of thousand years. Yet, we're trying to uh, rebirth it. So thinking about it that way, thinking of yourself as a replicator of this thing which wishes to move through society, gives a mechanical model for understanding uh, what is really ideological war, you know? A war about the definition of human nature. That's what's at stake. Uh, What shall we become? Uh, What can we become? Uh, There's no question that we need a greater consciousness of who we are. And if psychedelic drugs are to be taken seriously at all as consciousness-expanding agents, then they have to be given their due place in the great dialogue that's taking place about the, the future creating it and then uh, realizing it, the, the future of the species. <laughs>